We read that some men studied these seven liberal arts with such zeal that they had them completely in memory, so that whatever writings they subsequently took in hand, or whatever questions they proposed for solution or proof, they did not thumb the pages of books to hunt for rules and reasons which the liberal arts might afford for the resolution of a doubtful matter, but at once had the particulars ready by heart. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here, as always, with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute, and we are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. And today, we're very lucky to be joined by our friend, friend of the Ancient Language Institute, Dr. John Peterson who you just heard reading you a shocking quote about the liberal arts. Dr. Peterson is the assistant dean of the Braniff Graduate School of Liberal Arts at the University of Dallas. He also serves as the graduate director for classical education and American studies graduate programs and is affiliate assistant professor of humanities, the man of many titles. Thanks for joining us, John. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Today we're Turning again to Richard Gamble's great tradition, that anthology of readings, we've been, as you might know, going through it in reverse chronological order. We were just breaching the early modern period, and now we're jumping a few centuries to Hugh of St. Victor, great medieval theologian. And yeah, when we were talking with you, John, recently, and you mentioned that you even use this book in your classes. And so we said, oh, well, we got we to gotta have you on to do one of these readings. Hugh of St. Victor is definitely one of the readings in great tradition that we've been excited to do for a while. And so we're going to break our own rules a little bit and skip some of the early modern Renaissance, go into the medieval. We'll go back eventually. but. Yeah, really, really glad to have you. So I take it you've taught this selection from Hugh of St. Victor in your classes. What's the kind of setting? I mean, we really enjoy using this book for this podcast, but how do you use this in a class? So I, I use this with a couple of other readers on the tradition in education or sort of liberal arts education or liberal education. So this is one of them. It's actually hard to get now. Uh, as my students have found. Another one is called The Liberal Arts Tradition, a documentary history, which is published by uh, Association for Cortex and Courses. That, you know, it's it's very similar. Like, it also has a Hugh of St. Victor reading, but, and there's, there's often overlap with the Gamble reader, but often different selections as well. And another one I use is Ryan Topping's book called Renewing the Mind, a reader in the philosophy of Catholic education, which, as you might imagine, has a more Catholic emphasis, but it also has a little bit more of a humanist bent, so it includes people like Montaigne, okay. who are not included okay. in the other the other readers. So yeah, the class I teach is History of Liberal Arts Education, which is a survey course of different formulations, essentially, of the liberal arts. So you know, the trivium and the quadrivium, that's one formulation, but you could go back to obviously the the Romans uh, and the Greeks, where you have different sort of ideals of education put forward. 
you know, whether it's the ideal orator, the doctor orator, or the, you know, the good man skilled in speaking, or or something else. You have a medieval tradition which takes up the liberal arts, but then also you get these other formulations of the orderings of the arts, and at different times and in different places, one or other of the arts, especially between rhetoric and logic has preeminence. I mean, at the time of Hugh of St. Victor, basically logic becomes the term for all of the trivium, the liberal arts of word or language. So they, uh, they're all sort of subsumed under the general category of logic. Whereas, you know, with the Renaissance humanists or with the, the Romans, obviously the clear queen of the sciences is rhetoric. Now, there's a certain kind of medieval rhetoric as well, and that has a different connotation and meaning. But yeah, so the course is basically just going through very, you know, it's all these brief flirtations, you know, we're using these readers, we're not reading these texts in depth, but going through the history and finding these different moments, making sort of rough contrasts between them. I mean, to the present day where you have a liberal arts college tradition in America, which has become supplanted by the German research university model and the social sciences, and and which basically just completely destroys the old understanding of arts to the point where liberal arts today has become a completely meaningless term. So it's, it's about telling that story. So how do you set the scene for the, the brief flirt flirtation with Hugh of St. Victor for your students? Yeah, good. I mean, so I understand you guys are going from the present, essentially, to the to the past. So your listeners might not have this in view yet. But Hugh of St. Victor is somewhat of a, a middle case. He's between two significant moments <laughs> in that history that we're telling. Because he comes right before the rediscovery of Aristotle's four logical works, especially the one containing the treatment of the deductive syllogism, which is called the new logic and the, as a whole. And this revolutionizes the medieval university. So and you know, in St. Thomas Aquinas, I mean, he tries to talk fairly about the seven liberal arts. And, but I mean, ultimately, when you compare him to people like Hugh of St. Victor, he dismisses them as, you know, a, an outdated model of human knowledge uh, and, then, and of the arts. But he's doing something similar in that he is trying to create a comprehensive account of the of the different sort of systems of ordering human knowledge and the arts, which is what we see in Hugh of Saint Victor. So Hugh, you know, he comes out of a a sort of medieval encyclopedia tradition where the liberal arts are a kind of definite body of knowledge that is acquired by the student through very close and didactic uh, instruction, as to say, wrote reading and memory as a preparatory. But he's also bringing in the Ciceronian model, which divides knowledge into physics, ethics, and logic, where physics includes, you know, natural philosophy, ethics, moral philosophy, logic includes the trivium, and the Aristotelian divisions of theoretical, practical, productive, trying to sort of create one system to rule them all, essentially. So just to give a little bit more historical context, he was an Augustinian monk. He taught the liberal arts at 
the monastery. That's why it's Hugh of St. Victor. There's actually a, an alternative and rival to Peter Abelard, who is one of the first scholastic disputants. And you could, you could contrast his approach that you see in this work with that uh, approach of Abelard, which is a kind of like, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a Wild West gunslinger model of, <laughs> of uh, education, where it's like you prove your worth, like you, who's got the bigger gun, who's got the quicker draw on this logical disputation. Whereas with Hugh of St. Victor, it's a slow, careful, uh, comprehensive curriculum, which is why he emphasizes, you know, you go in this order, you know, you, you do it in this way. It proceeds from reading to meditation to contemplation. It's not to say it does not have its fruits in an ability to dispute questions, but he's emphasizing much more the order and agreement than he is the dispute. And also a kind of meditative reception of the truth rather than a kind of rational inquiry into the truth. One thing that, that you said there that I thought was really interesting was Thomas Aquinas thinking of Hugh of St. Victor as like outdated. It's, it's just really interesting because we, we can be tempted to think of someone like Aquinas as like, you know, tradition for tradition's sake. This is how we've always done things. And it seems like he's like, ah, you know, he, he had his run, but now we have Aristotle. So let's. Yeah. He's a modern. Like Aquinas is a modern from that point of view. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you're saying that what education is changed dramatically even within the medieval period, which means classical education can't just be the same way that everyone from Homer to Thomas Jefferson educated <laughs> that's right yeah yeah i mean there are basic points of agreement but and also it's worth i mean i don't want to overemphasize this i mean the arts course remains a huge preparatory part of the medieval university well into you know the 15th century but it's de-emphasized and you know that you have all sorts of university regulations which say things like you can't skip this you can't skip that you do have to spend a year teaching it like because people are trying to get through it because it's, it's basically just like i mean it's like high school age students you know 12 13 through you know 16 17 and they're really just trying to advance to the was something like professional training in the philosophies or in, in medicine or um law so that they can get their degree and go and have a lucrative position and some some status or class so yeah, I don't want to overemphasize the displacement of the liberal arts, but it's so when we say going back to the liberal arts, there's a good short derogatory essay that I like to assign students, which I mean is extremely hostile to you know what we would call classical education or liberal education. It was written in like an education journal, maybe in the 70s. It would, I think it was written on the occasion of the death of one of one of the great books movement people. I don't know if it was Mortimer Adler or it was Buchanan or somebody associated with St. John's. It's always good to dance on people's graves. Yeah, and he's a dancing on the grave. So it's like, this is a guy who said like, you know, we were, you know, we recover this 2000 year old tradition of the liberal arts, including the trivium and the quadrivium, you know, and then the, and this guy, <laughs> Frank Crowley is like, 
actually <laughs> AK ACK Actually, the Trivium and the Quadrivium didn't come into existence until you know Martianus Capella in fifth century or maybe the late fourth century AD. And it went out of existence with a medieval university in the 12th century. And this was the most retarded period of human, and he means retarded, that's like, you know, backward uh, period of human learning, which is like, to some degree, you have to look at the parts of it like that are accurate, which is that the formulation of the trivium and the quadrivium did not come into, as such, did not come into being until that point and was not emphasized as such, soon after the revolution of deductive syllogism and scholasticism. However, what those are pointing at and the understanding of education that they point at does have a long tradition that precedes Capella and does have a long afterlife after the medieval university. So there's a, something, there's a way in which what this guy says is very true, and, um, but is also a way in which it's deeply false in a more important way. And so this document in particular from Hugh of St. Victor, I'm barely even a novice when it comes to Hugh of St. Victor, this I take it is not really emblematic of what he generally spent his time doing, at least writing-wise. He was a theologian. But here we have this educational treatise. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a kind of guide to education. I mean, it's a kind of guide to one's reading. So it's a guide to like the preparation that, one needs to undergo before one could do the original work of a theologian. It's a student's guide, essentially. You know, read these things in these this order and in this way. But the goal is, I mean, what what part of what makes the liberal arts liberal is that they free you from the need for a teacher. But at first, you need teachers. You need to sort of just undergo a training. Because if you don't do that first, then you and you try to you know get into these theological questions is extremely fraught. You know you, you just are not going to be able to to do that. You'll be extremely susceptible to error unless you have learned to. I mean, I kind of hate the phrase like think, learn to think for yourself or whatever. But I mean, that's you've learned to read and and think about fundamental questions through the liberal arts, which means you. But first, you've had to take these things in from. The tradition, which could include very definite books. I mean, if another historical thing. I, don't, I mean, I want to get into the the text, so I don't want to keep distracting us from that. But you know, in the medieval schools, including in the university arts courses, a curriculum for the arts was very prescribed. I mean, it was like these twenty books, often, you know, and it was like you read this, you read this Porphyry's commentary on whatever, uh, you know. Boethius on music. I mean, it's, and it's often, you know, they don't have a lot of like Plato and Aristotle. They have like what Boethius wrote about Aristotle, right? They have somebody's commentary on the Timaeus. Like, I mean, so you have a cherished small body of texts on the arts that uh, one has to master. Uh, I mean, a lot of com- a lot of grammar, especially like Donatus and Priscus and stuff like that. Then I mean, that's just worth keeping in mind. That what he's talking about is not like, oh, you know, what we would talk about with, well, you're going to study literature, you're going to read Plato, and you're going to read Sophocles, and 
whatever, Dante, Virgil, things like that. We're not talking about huge works of literature. So as, as you were kind of describing some of the setting here, I think if, if I were to pick up, you know, the, the, the Scalican or uh, read it again, I'd be tempted to think like this is a guide for autodidacts. But then you, you point out this, this note, it's like you need a teacher, right? Before you get to that, before you can even think about being a responsible autodidact. And so who is the target audience then for this compendium of how to go about an education? Seems like it's not, it's not your autodidact. Would it be other, other heads of schools? Yeah, I think I, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. But I, th- I would think that it was something like that. You know, it's like you've got Peter Abelard next door and you're like, okay, you know, let me explain what it really is about, you know, what we're really doing here as opposed to what you're doing. I don't want to overemphasize the difference between them, but, but yeah, I mean, th- and there's a tradition of this kind of writing that he is participating in, the discalic or didactic literature of, you know, it's an encyclopedic tradition where you say, here are the arts, here are the, uh, here's the way, here's what each of them does, here's what you, how you proceed through them. And that part of that tradition includes Isidore, to some degree, Alcuin, uh, who else? I mean, I mean, obviously, Martianus Cabela, um, Cassiodorus. And in them, you see this kind of display of learnedness, which often has very weird components to it, you know, that are like, well, where did that come from? I mean, like a lot of it is like speculative etymology. (laughs) It's just like, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's where that uh, comes from, but that's fine. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's there's a long tradition of it. It does not really answer your question, but you know, it kind of reminds me of. One of the readings we already did from this book is John Battista Vico's orations to his students, where I mean one of my favorite parts of that in from what we read in the Great Tradition is where he he starts off by talking about how bad parents are at educating their kids and like you don't know anything and our educational system's terrible and your parents don't know what they're doing. They have bad motives. And then eventually he twists the knife. And the point is, you are going to become parents and make all the same mistakes. And it's really a kind of harangue to get them to buckle down on their own studies so that they don't mess up their own kids. And so it's this kind of like, it's the teacher telling the students, telling his own students how you're going to learn is like, oh, you, you're coming in here to the monastic school. You think you're really hot stuff. Well, I know people who've memorized all seven of the liberal arts. They don't even need to look at books anymore. <laughs> they just they know yeah. so well. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. I mean, yeah, so it's a comprehensive account. It's kind of like, I mean, I see, actually I see a lot of parallels to strangely between Hugh of St. Victor and the Republic. One thing you get in the Republic is this argument that you need to be able to give a comprehensive overview of the unity of your education. And this is that's something like what is being presented here, which is also something that Vico emphasizes, you know, that you, you need to understand that these are not 
just sort of different like category, different like subject matters, you know, that are just that are separated from each other and unrelated. This is all unified in one. <laughs> this is one one unified human understanding. And unless you can give that account, then you don't you aren't really well educated. And you need them all. And if you don't have them all, then all the parts of it, then you won't actually have the whole. So you won't really you you won't really know. So it seems like if I remember my Biko, he's hearkening back to this kind of tradition. Definitely. Well, so Hugh, our friend Hugh, comes right out of the gates, <clears throat> guns blazing, in the opening to the Didascalcan. There are many persons whose nature has left them so poor in ability that they can hardly grasp with their intellect even easy things. And of these persons, as a good medieval theologian, makes a distinction. I believe there are two kinds. And so he ends up, if you imagine the like quadrant of the political compass, where you have like X, Y coordinates, he divides students. Similarly, there's like the axis of ability, like you have a kind of natural aptitude or you don't have it. And then there's the like effort or desire axis that crosses it. So you work hard or you don't work hard. Obviously, it's best to be super smart and to work hard. The next best thing to him is to be dumb, but work hard. Because at least you can kind of, you're not going to like pick up on everything, but you, if you really grind, you can learn some stuff. And then if you don't care, well, you know, obviously you're really not going to learn anything if you're dumb and you don't care. But it's actually on some level worse to have natural aptitude and not work because you're, you're just, your talents are just kind of running out into the sand. He does say that, yeah. He says, bury your talents in the earth. Bury the talents of God in the earth, seeking, if, in it, seeking from it neither the fruit of wisdom nor the profit of good work. Yeah, and just and to add something, he says, well, you kind of have an excuse if you have to work and things, like from you know studying, kind of. But you know what? Now that I think about it, I know people who also are busy and uh, still just through sheer exertion, even though no resources support them, are able to learn. We see many laboring in hunger, thirst, and nakedness attain to the fruit of knowledge. So what's your excuse? Almost, he almost admits a third access or something, and he's like, no, you know what? No, there's no excuse. <laughs> it's really fascinating because you hear... One of the big contemporary criticisms of humanistic study, liberal arts, etc., is that oh, this is this is exclusively the domain of privileged people who, you know, just have all this inherited wealth and don't need to get jobs, and so they can just waste their time reading Dante. And we live in an age of eye-popping material abundance, right? That is not the age. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's crazy how much time kids spend in school without learning anything. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, this is a question that I'm actually, I'm really interested in, which is this relation between uh, society and education or politics and education, especially this question of scarcity and the need for, uh, you know, people to have different kinds of jobs. And so, so if you look at the ancients, I mean, they would, what your charge, the charge 
that it's elitist, would, they would agree with, like, yeah, of course it's elitist. Like, <laughs> you know, you need to be a free person. Part of being a liberal education is it means you're not working. You know, that's part of what being, being free means. If you were having to work for a living, like for a wage, well, sorry, you're not going to be able to have an education and think freely. But there are two sort of ways that that is challenged subsequently. One is by Christianity and then later by modernity, but where Christianity claims to lay open the possibility of uh, wisdom for everybody and a life which is conducive to wisdom. You know, so even though you have, you might be engaged in a kind of drudgery, it, this is, uh, wisdom is available to you. Nevertheless, I mean, a lot of Christian writers in the tradition make a distinction between kind of um, sort of a simple unlearned piety and a, a learned piety. And they'll even say, like, it's better to be learned. <laughs> like, like you actually, it's, I mean, which is crazy because it's like, well, if the piety, if, if, if you have the faith, shouldn't that be enough? Uh, uh, you know, what does the learning add to it? And so, I mean, you have a whole patristic and uh, tradition of wrestling with this question and arguing for it in various ways, like Jerome, Gregory, etc. But part of the argument is it's easier to fall into error, actually, if you are unlearned. It's easier to be deceived about what the truth is. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. It seems like sometimes heresies, where do heresies come from? They often come from the those who are the in being learned are given charge of a flock, you know, and they're most susceptible to innovations, things like that. But that said, that's one way that you could sort of solve the problem of this distribution of human ability and scarcity. And the other way is modernity, which claims, well, we through technology, essentially, through human effort and industry, we can actually create uh, solve this problem of scarcity. And so, you know, we'll achieve something like universal public education, which will, you know, which didn't emerge because of like progressivism or something. It didn't emerge because of, you know, socialism. It emerged in like, you know, 17th century in Germany, like from Protestant reformers who were very much interested in reforming society and creating a, a learned, faithful, self-ruling people. But Part of the claim is you can overcome this difference because you because of technology means you don't have to work, so so you can you can free some people from that need for long enough that they can have this solid basis of edu- of their in their education. Somewhere along the way that <laughs> went wrong. So it was either we're not doing it right or it's actually not possible. Yeah, I'd like to put Hugh of Saint Victor into a conversation with another great educational thinker. Doug Lemov. Lemov. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lemov, yeah. Teaching, teach, teach like a champion, yeah. The author of Teach Like a Champion, 63 Techniques That Put Students on the Path to College, which is, I haven't actually read this book, but what I have read is Dr. John Peterson's review of this book, 3.0, so this must be the third edition, that appeared in Principia, journal, a journal of classical education, volume one, issue or edition one, whatever, the very first one, you have this review. It's very strange review in Principia. So it's a journal, new journal, brand new journal, dedicated to classical education. And you appear in this journal reviewing like what seems to me the least classical 
work of educational thought imaginable, all about <laughs> techniques, classroom techniques for managing your students. You even say, teach like a champion is indeed a thoroughly modern work of pedagogy. Okay, it's interesting. What's it? What's this review doing in this journal? But the reason I bring it up is it seems to me like the opening to the Didaskalkan is speaking directly to Teach Like a Champion and some of the stuff you bring up. And so I just want to read from your review. And this is following on some of what you were just saying. The promise of the work, the book, Teach Like a Champion, and of modern education generally is that inequality and scarcity in education can be overcome through the employment of the proper methods. Natural differences in intelligence. So there we go. There's one axis on our like political compass of students. Natural differences in intelligence and talent. You even, you even have the word talent in there, just like you of St. Victor. And the inevitable distinctions of class and income that have typically made for great disparities access to and time for education need no longer be limits because of method. And then you say, whether or not the fulfillment of this promise is possible, it is nevertheless the case that the institutions of modern education are meant to achieve it. And classical education as a modern movement must accommodate in varying degrees, based on circumstance, these expectations. And then skipping a little bit, Teach Like a Champion will be instructive and helpful for teachers precisely where it is modern on means or techniques in education. How would the careful reader of Hugh of St. Victor kind of approach Teach Like a Champion and your review? It seems like Hugh of St. Victor is not interested in... He's interested in method on some level, but method in not a modern sense, I guess. He says there's certain ways, there's a certain method for education, but that method is not intended to solve class distinctions or make up for the fact of different intelligence. He just kind of takes that stuff as a given and says, deal with it. I'm giving you a method to attain wisdom. Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between ancient and modern method in precisely the way that you have outlined that modern method claims to solve this problem of fundamental differences of ability where you don't actually need to be to know the end you don't need to see the whole you just sort of work away at your little part by applying the, the rules in the proper order and then you will uh contribute to a whole that you will actually never know uh, but you, but together we will create and solve these. Uh, we will solve these big problems. Right? I don't want to just emphasize the science part of that. Like we'll solve scientific questions because it's employed in many different ways to sort of just get things done. But the ancient understanding is, as you said, you know, you can't erase those differences. Those are permanent features of human life. So just like keeping in mind the rarity of people who will achieve the high things, there nevertheless still can be a method that prescribes rules and precepts. But the point is not to remain in those forever. It's actually to follow them so that one can have the whole of human knowledge open to you. Right. So that's still the goal. The goal is still 
learnedness and wisdom for an individual, not some collective project. Uh, and that's what Hugh of St. Victor is saying here. I mean, he yes, he does say, well, better to be dumb and work hard than to be smart and work hard. But nevertheless, it, it's still rare that, I mean, the, those who are dumb and work hard probably won't reach the end that he's describing. It's a rare end and, and even a philosophic end. And I think that, I mean, just to skip ahead in this reading, I mean, he is, whether he knows it or not, and I don't know his, I, I, I don't think that it, he would know it, given his historical circumstances, he's echoing Plato in the Republic, describing the conditions under which it is possible that the rare creature known as the philosopher could emerge. The very strange circumstances under which it is possible. Because, because yes, the philosophic nature is itself an extremely rare human type. But then beyond that, because it is a beautiful and attractive type, which is excellent and resplendent in its virtues and all of that, uh, it's drawn by the world and by the various attractions of the world to you know their ends, to politics and and other things like that, as because it is excellent. And so it actually takes sort of rare circumstances that will cultivate, you know, will allow the philosopher philosophic nature to be cultivated into a philosopher. Now, the, the monastic equivalent to that is, well, not equivalent, it's a monastic uh, parallel to that is more deliberately <laughs> um, uh, conditioned. That is to say, uh, you know, you go at a young age, you have certain practices that you engage in, sort of habits of prayer, habits of, of reading, and certain um, limitations that you voluntarily place upon yourself, vows of poverty, of chastity, etc. And these things all make possible the wisdom that you, that you seek. Uh, but even then, you also need to be intelligent, etc. But even then, it's very difficult. So It's interesting you bring up the Republic. And I've never thought about this before. I'm sure it's occurred to lots of other smarter people. But, you know, the kind of surface level reading of Plato's Republic generally horrifies readers because of his program of like total communism, even going as far as bodies, you know, it's like nobody really knows their own parents because they have this like weird eugenic breeding program um, because everyone has to belong to the city. And it's just like, Oh, this is, this is crazy. Nobody has private property seems terrible but socrates seems to be saying yeah this is this is how to create a just city but of course the monastic communities are that a not exactly but are a kind of expression of communism in christendom uh these are the people who take literally at various levels of observance the evangelical councils of poverty of chastity and of obedience, where you don't really own anything, um, and you're just kind of do whatever you're told by the superior, and you don't have your own family, uh, and that's that's the situation. Hugh of Saint Victor is writing kind of within and to. Yeah, and a contrast with 
modernity is, I mean, it's almost too obvious as to need to be said, but just, <laughs> I mean, the modern, you can have everything. Like, you don't need to limit yourself in any way, actually, or submit to anybody's rule. So what does the teacher have to do? The teacher has to sort of cajole and trick and, like, manipulate the environment around the students such that, like, whoop, whoop, accident, look, oh, I learned something. A learning outcome was achieved. You know, and just on a broader level than that, I mean, modern society doesn't tell you that you have to submit to a ruler, uh, to submit to an authority on questions of what it is that you, what is good and what you ought to do and in what order. It compels and restricts us in many ways, but it never requires us to submit intellectually and morally in, ex in those explicit terms. Well, it's much, there's an atmosphere of docility and authority, which is taken for granted here, which we cannot take for granted in modernity, which is why you need to rely on techniques, 63 or however many techniques, which are, you know, forms of the kinds of technology. I mean, there's essentially scientific products. You know, where, how do they, where do they come from? They come from empirical study of the success of applications of methods. So it's like already imply it's already takes for granted that you have there has to be something objective and measurable so for you to be able to measure its success you need to be able to have some quantity of this with so it's going to rely on testing and things like that and so just right off the bat you can just wipe away the vast majority of educational goals in the history of western civilization because most of those things are not things we should you could measure on an individual basis at least at the moment that it happens. The measure of education is a happy life <laughs> and a good life, right? And a good citizen and things like that. You know, and part of that includes that you know certain things and that you have certain shared cultural uh, touchstones and things like that. And, and you could measure those things in a certain way, but most of what the tradition of which Hugh of St. Victor is a part represent could not be measured, so. Yeah, so he's, he's having a very different educational technology. One thing that can be measured is whether or not you've memorized all the liberal arts. So can you? what's going on with that? How is it possible? That, how, how can you memorize all the liberal arts? Yeah, it's, it's also something Augustine says in the Confessions. He says that, yeah, the liberal arts were easy. I mastered that stuff. I mastered it and uh, it didn't make me happy. Didn't that it wasn't. Every time I've read that, I've been like, what? That is so cocky. Like, <laughs> but when you read uh, a lot of this encyclopedia material, you see what could be meant by that is something like the rules and precepts. This is something that uh, Hugh St. Victor emphasizes. I'm not sure if it's here. So, but like, I mean, if this is actually the, the our book is missing a crucial heading on page 257 above chapter three which arts are principally to be read actually this is book three so it skips from book one chapter one to book three chapter three and in between you have a whole section where he does talk about what books are and what books do and one of the things the books do is they contain rules and precepts for ordering your reading i mean ordering your mind well, he actually does say this here. He says this on page 260. He says, 
aptitude gets practice from two things, reading and meditation. Reading consists of forming our minds upon rules and precepts taken from books, and it is of three types, the teachers, the learners, and the independent readers. Or we say, I am reading the book to him, I am reading the book under him, and I am reading the book. But the important part there is that the book contains certain, it contains an art. So the art is an order of things. So by reading it, one's mind becomes structured in a certain way in accordance with the truth that the art is the true art. And so Hugh makes a distinction between the arts and the appendages of the arts on page 258. And this does help us to see how one could know the arts in memory, but probably not the appendages of the arts. What makes something an appendage is that it is a sort of iteration or instance of the subject matter treated in the art, but it does not contain its essential precepts or rules. So he includes amongst the appendages things like all of the songs of the poets, tragedies, comedies, satires, heroic verse and lyric, iambic, certain didactic poems, fables and histories, and all of the writings of those fellows whom today we commonly call philosophers and who are always taking some small to matter and dragging it out through long verbal detours. So, I mean, all of philosophy and poetry are included in appendages. That is to say, they're not part of the liberal arts. They're not the things that you would hold in your memory completely. So the liberal arts isn't reading Dostoevsky. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so is it when you boil down the trivium and quadrivium into like memorizable precepts, that's what the liberal arts are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like very precise formulae, right, of, uh, you know, about language. Less clear to me what the mathematical arts were in terms of what is memorized exactly. But in terms of the trivium, I mean, you have very, as I said, very precise formulae that, you know, one often present times presented actually in like rhymable couplets and things like that, that one could reproduce at will. The Jesuits actually did a lot of stuff like this. I mean, they, they, the Jesuits are an interesting model because they combine sort of the humanist revolution and, and literature and, and, and poetry and things like that. And reviving, especially, you know, classical Latin style and Cicero and things like that with this kind of traditional uh, arts education and the scholastic insistence upon precision and memorization of like sort of precise formulae and so the jesuit student would be just would have these sort of requirements of things to memorize like exactly as such just so every day i mean that's like what you're doing in school is you're is you're spending all of your time memorizing you're also reading literature and things like that but that's not sort of the point of school. The point of school is to, to sort of get down a definite body of knowledge. And even if you don't really understand it, I mean, that's the thing is like, you have to actually read it first and then understand it. That's the, I mean, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the odd thing here. It's like when we think about reading, we, when our term reading, we tend to combine like reading, thinking about it, understanding it, like, no, 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 no. It's just you read it first. That means that you just like receive it. That's why he who will say, you know, I'm reading the book under him. He's reading the book to me. 
you receive it. I mean, and, and so you have to think about, okay, how does this actually take place in the classroom? Well, there's literally a reader, right? A, a lecturer is a reader, and you probably don't have a physical copy of the book yourself because books are scarce. And so, you know, you might write as much as you can, or with, with, there's also scribes who, you know, that's, that's a job you can do. Uh, but that's all expensive, and difficult. So I mean, basically, the point is to just consume it and and make it part of you first. And then now that it's part of you, now you can meditate upon it. Now you can try to put these things together. I mean, it's just not the way we talk about it. Where we say, well, this is above or beyond. This is this is past the reading level of these students or whatever. You know, you can't make elementary school students memorize such and such because you know they don't understand that. Oh yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> you can put that in. Their you can put it in their cells, and then they're like, "What do I do with this?" Like, you can make them memorize like the whole Declaration of Independence if you wanted, including the grievances. And they'd be like, you know, forty years later, they're like, "Ah, he has completed his works of death by bringing upon us the like. What? Why do I have this in my head? You know, like when in the course of human events become, you know, uh, it's just going to be there, you know, and." You have to do something with it, but that's part of what he means by reading. There's so much of this, particularly when you're talking about memorization. It makes me feel like I'm reading The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy Sayers through like kind of like how you put a pencil in a glass of water and the, it gets all like bent and enlarged. It's kind of weird. Like through centuries and centuries of distortion, I'm reading Dorothy Sayers. It's like, yeah, you. the first thing you got to do is just like memorize a bunch of stuff. But for Dorothy Sayers, she's like, it doesn't really matter what, just like, I don't know, how about some dates about the English monarchy? And make sure you show them pictures of clothes for each date. And then they'll like have an image of it, but just make sure they... Kids really love dates. They'll just memorize all these dates. I'm, like, I'm not sure it's true, but just memorize that. It doesn't really matter what you memorize because the ultimate goal is to get students to equip them with the mental equipment for learning on their own. And so that actually sounds a lot like Hugh of St. Victor. He says, out of all the sciences above named, however, the ancients in their studies especially selected seven, so this is the Trivium Quadrivium, to be mastered by those who are to be educated. These seven they considered so to excel all the rest in usefulness that anyone who had been thoroughly schooled in them might afterward come to a knowledge of the others by his own inquiry and effort rather than by listening to a teacher. That's what Dorothy Sayers wants is... These are the tools. You really need to know the trivium. She just kind of drops the quadrivium. You really need to know the trivium because these are the tools by which students will no longer, they'll kind of be immunized against the technology of propaganda and they can just go learn anything. And that's not so different from Hugh of St. Victor with the difference that actually the matter to be memorized is really important and like you said it's extremely formulaic like it's not optional what you memorize and this helps me understand why dorothy sayers drops the quadrivium in her little essay or lecture because grammar 
dialectic and rhetoric, it's easier to see how those can be these kind of like metaphorical bodies of knowledge that are really techniques like grammar. It's really the like underlying order of any subject, whereas it's hard to do that like astronomy or music, you know, it's like the music of history. Oh, yeah. People do that, though. I mean, there are classical ed books that do that now, for sure. But yes, like that say, you know, they're definitely not treating the quadrivial arts as a definite body of knowledge that must be learned. They're saying, well, you know, yeah, there's a kind of musical treatment of the subject matter that you should bring into your curriculum. You know, so you might not have a music course or a music class specifically, but you treat it in a music, you know, musical way. I don't know how that would work for astronomy, but um, but there are, there are there are some parallels between the trivium and the quadrivium in that way that you know one can can draw. Obviously, like music and rhetoric, for instance. I mean, there's a kind of parallel there. But yeah, I see what you're saying for sure. Uh, so what, yeah, what what Hugh is saying is not sort of just use this tool or method. This is the stage of life in which a student can best sort of assimilate stuff. So it's a definite and systematic body. I mean, he even says, he says there's seven to be mastered and say like 258 to 259. So this is chapter, uh, book three, chapter four. He says, our effort should be first given to the art in which are the foundation stones of all things and in which pure and simple truth is revealed. And especially to the seven already mentioned, which comprise the tools of all philosophy. And I don't, I don't know what the Latin is there. It could be just like instrumentum or something. Instrumenta. He does use the word tools, at least in this translation. Afterwards, if time affords, let these other things be read, for sometimes we are better pleased when entertaining reading is mixed. Okay, so then it goes on to say on the next page, if only one of the arts be lacking, all the rest cannot make a man into a philosopher. Therefore, those persons seem to me to be an error who not appreciating the coherence among the arts select certain of them for study and leaving the rest untouched. So, I mean, each one of them is part. He's, is necessary. You can't leave out a part. So there's a, there's a coherence. There's a system to the arts course. And then he goes on to treat them, chapter five, how each one ought to be studied. And just to try to sum that up very briefly, he just says, avoid going off into tangents. I mean, avoid just you, you treat the essential points you know, you're not memorizing, okay, now we're going to memorize, you know, this cute poem or something. It's like, no, you just, we're learning grammar. <laughs> this is how it works. It's funny because it's like we have this word trivia, right, uh, for, you know, from trivium. And it's like the opposite of what he would emphasize. I don't know, like, like how that word came to have that meaning. I don't know if you guys know that, but I've been meaning to look that up. But it's basically what he's talking about, what we call trivia is like a, just bogs down your your education. You actually just need to treat the subject as it is. So he says to treat of grammar belongs to certain books. And he mentions Prisky and Donatus Servius as a subject. But to treat grammatically belongs to all books, of course, because this is a subject which is a, found, a foundation stone. So if you want to read all books or any book, you need to know grammar. So you need to study, read the books, study the subject just uh, as such so don't and he says don't 
Don't go into these digressions. Treat what belongs to each subject. He seems to to me, Hugh St. Victor, to be a just a very perceptive observer of humans. I think it's clear he has the aptitude and judgment that are required of a great thinker. Just because he can penetrate to the heart of what's really going on. So he's talking about these teachers who, yeah, go into all this trivia and who are like in love with the sound of their own voices. And he says, it is not the teaching of others that they accomplish in this way, but the showing off of their own knowledge. He's like, I know what's going on. And this is a theme for him is like the conceitedness of teachers and students. And it seems to be one of the great enemies He's like, okay, we've left behind the problem of the dull and the unmotivated, the slothful. Like those people, uh, they just really can't be helped on some on some level. Moving beyond them, there's an additional challenge to overcome, even among those with at least moderate aptitude or better, and with at least moderate desire to learn or better. And that's conceit or like pride both in teachers and students, is the big problem. And that's something he returns to over and over again, is this is going to be a serious stumbling block in your learning if you can't deal with this. Yeah, that seems right to me. And it's why, I mean, so he gets into humility in two, uh, chapter 13, of book three. But it's after he, so when he talks, he talks about reading, treating it in the proper order and expounding it. He says exposition includes three things, the letter, the sense, and the inner meaning. And, you know, you have to go in that, in that order. And then, I mean, I'll just skip over what meditate. We can talk about meditation or something in memory later, but the, after talking about those things, he, that's when he talks about discipline and humility. The question is why? I mean, I guess, why would you not talk about those things earlier? But it seems like once one has learned <laughs> something, that's when the that's when the temptation comes in <laughs> to the conceitedness and the pride that you're describing. And so he quickly amps that down, saying, a humble mind, an eagerness to inquire, a quiet life, silent scrutiny, poverty, a foreign soil, which are basically all, that's just all the subjects of the remaining chapters of that, of book three. These for many unlock the hidden places of learning. So it's like, oh, you think you've learned something. Actually, you haven't. <laughs> haven't learned anything yet. Yeah, he says, this is in chapter 13, uh, in the second paragraph. I have known many of this sort who, although they still lacked the very rudiments of learning, yet deigned to concern themselves only with the highest problems. I feel like this is the definition of a sophomore, right? The wise fool who's like, like, oh, I just heard about the problem of evil for the first time. I'm, I now have the solution to the problem of evil. And it's like, you haven't read anything. Josh, it's like, it's like analytic philosophers who are like, they're like, oh, we're treating this problem for the first time. Or it's like, well, it's simple. Like, what? You think, what? What? You think nobody has ever talked about this before? Uh, well, and to give these people access to the internet, his his discussions and his observations as to like what goes wrong in the classroom 
are very just very practical as well. It's like, okay, we want the kids to learn this stuff. So don't start lecturing about this other important thing that comes to mind. Like keep your eye on the target. And there's a, there's a, definitely a moral component to that, which is what was read from earlier. It's just this pride. And so that, that got me thinking, does Teach Like a Champion have any of those sorts of observations in terms of like this, this emphasis on virtue and the practical implications? Or is it more kind of geared towards like the teacher as a, I don't want to say as a performer, but as the, the activity that the teacher is doing, is it exclusively geared towards that? Or does it also kind of observe what it is that students are are doing and interacting with the teacher? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does both. I mean, first, I just want to say that, I mean, you know, I use Teach Like a Champion in my own classical pedagogy class, not as here's what classical pedagogy is, obviously. But because it's, I do mean what I said about in, in my review, which is that classical schools are in, they're modern schools in the sense that they, they have to deal with these modern situations that are just forced upon them. And what does that mean? You have, you have a classroom of 25 students. There are different abilities. You can't just say to a student, like, sorry, you're a dumb dumb. Like, you can't, I'm not going to teach you. Like, what? Like, or you can't say, like, sorry, uh, you are just a badly formed person. And you, like, don't have the discipline to learn from me. And so, bye. Like, no, you just have to take some. And and you're responsible. And oftentimes, like, if you don't, it's your fault, not their fault. So you're just given all these expectations, you're expected to use certain technology, you're expected to, you know, you have all these teach certain subject curriculum that's given to you. So like, how do you do it? And they have, it's a lot of techniques about that. So it's a lot about what the teacher does, but also, you know, how do you measure what the teacher does? You have to look at what the students are, are learning, what the students are doing. So one of the main ways the book is for, structured is according to this idea of ratio, and, and it's you want to have improve your ratio and the ratio is of what the teacher is doing to what the student is doing. That's to say you want the student to be doing more of the work and the teacher to be doing less work. And so, you know, so a good example of this that we're probably familiar with, well, many people listening are probably familiar with is, you know, you assign a paper and it's like, I don't know, four, write a four page paper on like, you know, Sophocles or something. You know, and it's like, then you, on this question, maybe you give them the prompt, maybe you scaffold it all for them, but maybe you don't. You just say, write it on something. And then you read all of the papers and you grade every, you comment on everything about it and you correct all the grammar and syntax and you give it back to the student two weeks later and the student never looks at it. You wasted all of your time and they have no idea what to do with all of the things you've written on it, even if they do look at it. You're not using your time intelligently because you're not, it wasn't clear to you what you were doing with the paper. Like, what was the purpose of the purpose of the paper? So it's not like you all of the things you wrote about aren't things that you would want to address, but just you don't need to address all of the things all of the time. You're just going to exhaust yourself, and the students aren't actually going to learn anything in a focused way. So better to like have them write one portion of the paper or just focus on one portion or one aspect of it at a time. You will like won't exhaust yourself, and they will actually learn something in a more focused way. So, you know, that, that kind of thing, how do you, uh, in a classroom, you know, when a bunch of students are working on something, you know, how do you, tar in a targeted way, 
help all of them at the same time, you know. You know, and a lot of the stuff it verges on behavior, behaviorism, like where it's kind of like, well, if only, you know, it's like this famous Skinner box experiment or thing where he not experiment, but posited, <laughs> you know, well, if only you could just have a machine where just student would press the wrong answer and then nope, and like you could just do all that where the work of the teacher would be taken from them, and then you could focus on them getting the right answer because that's what education is is training them behaviorally to think rightly to get the correct answer you know there's some of that there but i actually use this book because compared to the mainstream education resources this book is actually very conservative <laughs> i just want to point that out it's actually somewhat reactionary to the degree that they've had to like apologize or they've had to like they faced criticism uh, doug lamov is with this uncommon schools network which is a charter school network in like inner city schools in like the new york area i don't, I don't know where else it, but it's in the northeast and they focus on like extremely regimented scripted teacher work so like a champion teacher, I mean, they sure, like, there's actually a DVD of videos that like for that, that comes with the book modeling these various practices. And you can see like the students are extremely regimented. It's like, it's like they all stand up at the same time and they look at the person who's answering the question. And it's like, it's like, that's all necessary because there's literally no culture behind the classroom. It's like, it's not like you have all these expectations and docility and authority of the tradition and all of that. It's like, no, you have nothing. You have literally nothing. You have outcomes that you need to achieve and you need to implement the culture. So you just like, it takes a forceful, performative teacher in order to do that. So I'm not trying to teach my students in my classes how to be like that, but I am moving them maybe more in that direction than they are inclined to be because they are inclined to be the kind where it's like, well, I just like love books and like I want to talk about books and like students, like if I'm loving it and I'm enthusiastic, like they're also going to love it. It's like, yeah, okay. But like they're also 12 or eight. <laughs> hey, there's 25 of them. And, you know, you need to think about uh, just establishing some routines and structures that will really allow you to do the work that you want to do. Because if you don't think about routines and structures, you're actually going to spend more time on those things than if you did think about them and implement them. So it's that kind of thing. I don't, I didn't want to talk all about <laughs> and I got to you, but yeah. another thing that I, that I wonder about is you mentioned your interest in like scarcity and education. And it's interesting to see how like material reality just affects how you think about pedagogy. So if you have seen Victor, his expectation is, Kids don't have books, right? The students don't have books. So we need to approach education in a certain way. And would be like, this project only works if we do it this way. Now, like books everywhere, right? Everyone has books. Too many books, um, one might say. And with that particular example, are there any, any shifts, um, any big pedagogical shifts that, that you see happen? Like, you don't have books, you do this. You do have books, now you need to do things. And is there anything gained or lost in those kind of scarcity shifts? Yeah, that's a good question. So these, like, there are these um, 
I don't know, there's a term for like the, cl the classics, like there's a term for this, like reception or like choke points or something. I don't know. But like there's points where like there's a new format and things, there's like at some point a choice of like what gets translated into that new format. So like this is actually happening now to some degree with digital technology because you even, you could say like, well, yes, you could just digitize everything. But like that, that hasn't happened and it's not happening. Like <laughs> it's not going to happen. So just like, Hundreds of thousands of works, if not millions, of written works are never going to be digitized. You know, and why? Because of like what what priorities we had at the time that that happened. So I, I would just say that up, up front. But you know, the humanists are dealing with this problem a lot because they suddenly decide realize like, oh, there's these books in monasteries and stuff that nobody is talking about, and re like what? Uh, there's like a gold rush for books. In monasteries, and it's like, you know, there's like a letter of Petrarch, you know, to his friend. He's like, Yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't given you back the um, Plato I borrowed from you, but it's just like, I can't find a competent scribe, you know, who knows, uh, it wasn't Plato, it was like, it's Cicero, you know, who, whose Latin is good enough that I can trust that they're, I mean, even though he's literally just copying it, like, you know, you need to know the language well to be able to, to do that well. So he's just like, Sorry, I'm just, I'm just copying it myself. So <laughs> uh, it's going to be a while. And it's like had been four years, you know. And he's like, I'm just committing it to memory, parts of it to memory as I do it. But um, this is just what I have to do. But, I mean, to answer your question more sincerely or directly, something happens, I think, when you go from like temporary, like writing technology, like you've got like a tablet that you can like wipe away, to like you just like have cheap disposable paper which is that <laughs> you know you just don't memorize things like you just don't memorize things because you've got i mean this is obviously a, a long established problem it's treated in plato's phaedrus that writing as a technology is has a certain downside <laughs> which is loss of memory but i think there's really you know we really see this when you have like a lot of printed books and a lot of you know, ability, it's easy to write and maintain papers. But nevertheless, I mean, a certain, um, like, memory is continu continues to be emphasized in schools, you know, well into, well past the advent of those technologies. So I'm not sure that that, that alone is responsible for now our complete avoidance or, you know, of, of that as a educational tool. So now with the digital technology and you know, schools think that like every kid needs an iPad and, you know, modern schools, you see, like, I mean, you just sometimes will see, you know, even if you don't, didn't go to a public school or you don't know what it's like now, I mean, you'll just like look for like videos of like, you know, whatever, like freakouts in the classroom with students fighting or whatever. It's like, <laughs> you know, you'll find videos that way of like, or just look up school. It's just like, look up the modern classrooms. just like, they are, there's always a screen on, it's one thing, because there's always using slides and things. And uh, students have their own technology. I mean, they often have phones, which is why these videos exist. But no, there's no expectation of memory, even of the thing that's very much in, in front of you, because that's a slide that's available to you in like the online learning center or whatever. So it's what, what becomes emphasized is reproducible, like, content like reproducible facts so just like not that you could think about something or argue about something 
not that you have certain like, cultural knowledge, but that you can reproduce digestible facts and imitate skills. I mean, basically just like be an inferior algorithm. But, the, but here's the interesting thing at this very moment is that we have superior algorithms, computers, so uh, to the human mind in a lot of ways, just in terms of just algorithmically. Like, so, the, you know, we've all known calculators for a long time can compute better than a human being can. But now our algorithms can actually write essays better than most students in the kind of essays that we are asking them to write. They can pass any standardized test. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think ChatGPT aced the bar, for example. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it be able to? It's just, it's asking you like verifiable, objective questions about law. And so it's possible. I mean, I'm not confident. <laughs> it's possible that this kind of thing, those kinds of AI algorithms, I mean, they, I mean, okay, AI is supposed to be something different from an algorithm. I'll just put that out there. But I mean, essentially, it's, it's, it's the same thing, which is to say a kind of calculation based on certain inputs of certain outputs. I mean, it's still a computer. And my worry is, so it's like, it's possible that these kinds of things will make education have a revolution into those human, fundamentally human things that are not algorithmic. But it seems more, more to me more likely that human beings become more like what the AI is, which is algorithmic. I mean, it seems like the danger is not like that a computer can imitate a human being. It's that a human being becomes like the computer. That is to say, it, you know, the the computer has certain inputs, and you know, it, you know, it just it believes whatever it's told to believe. You know, it has, and it's it's like completely stupid about anything outside of that. And my worry is that the human beings are, will be like that, and too many human beings are like that because we have had a non-humanistic education. For so long. And potentially even worse, not that even that humans will become, will be trained to be more algorithmic, but when teachers and educational administrators and education thought leaders really grapple with the fact that, yeah, not only can chat GPT or whatever call forth verifiable facts much faster than even a kid using Wikipedia can but can even produce what is basically creative stuff, like coming up with an analogy to make something comprehensible. Like ChatGPT does that already and will get better and better at it. Then it'll be like less like, oh, we should train our students to be like ChatGPT. It's we should train our students to be users of ChatGPT. Students become the like servants, the hand handmaids of algorithms. And that's what school's for is to teach you how to use these tools effectively. And it's for whatever task you have in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's a better way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah, is it is to become users of, or as James Poulos likes to say it, you'd be slaves to somebody else's robot. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you know, they make decisions about what you can do and, and, uh, what you should see and, and all of that, that, you know, are made by ultimately by some human being who is, is ruling you through these, these means. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a good model for actually talking about what technology often does at every level. I mean, Heidegger talks about this, but that it shapes, you know, what we see as the ideal 
and this is a particularly horrifying latest iteration of that if because i mean at some point the algorithm is changed trained according to what we think is justice is and the good is and virtue is and these human questions right and so often the most sort of memeable shareable like things that chat gpt says is not like hey look i wrote this great essay based on this prompt or assault it passed the bar but it's like it's like i'm sorry i can't answer that question because it goes against my you know or you know it, it reproduces a certain sort of moral view and those become our moral views because we are users of these things and so it's just it's self-enforcing i mean it's like how often you know television is meant to put forward a certain moral view and that becomes the reality for so many people who are users and consumers of television and so they're like well yes i know this is true so that's what humanity becomes yeah we're shaped by the things that we read and uh consume as media the media that we're that we're in and um and so yeah humanity will become you know so the relic of some robotic programming <laughs> you know whatever was the uh the the moral view of like the 2020s <laughs> like will become like future human you know like like somehow 100 years from now like it's like well they, you just sort of let the machine run out but it still holds the like, <laughs> like moral views that it had 100 years ago that will be self-reinforcing so i mean there yeah and there's some parallel here with you saint victor because of these stages i don't think we've talked about this quite explicitly yet but he says you know the first stage is reading and this is of course a book on reading did a scalacon studio legendi it's a book on reading reading then meditation then contemplation what are these three stages well reading is like i said you first just sort of assimilate then there's a kind of thinking about how does this relate to like me like you're trying to like connect the two connect to the subjects that you're studying, the various uh, things that you've taken in. But then finally, contemplation is like, there's a kind of, um, I, don't, I don't know that we have him talking about contemplation in this selection exactly, but it's, you know, how does this connect to, to God, right? It's a, uh, you seek a vision of God, essentially, through one's learning, through wisdom. I mean, that's ultimately what wisdom is pointing towards is God. And, the unity of all these things in God. And, you know, that's, that's the real danger of <laughs> uh, a media sub subhuman or extra human or post human is that, like, we begin to see a God that is not human, like, uh, you know, a God that is, you know, in comparison with which there's something, I don't know, like, like, like Gnostic about it. Like there's something going to be revealed like, like the human being is not like what does AI teach us as a technology, as a educational medium? Like the human being himself is not the thinking rational being. The human being is just a kind of like vessel or shell, you know, out of which uh, like justice and truth can emerge if properly like um, I don't know catechized. I don't know. I, I'm struggling to try to find a a way to to put this as a kind of parallel with, with Hugh of Saint Victor. Uh, you don't have to think about it, right? You don't actually have to do any of the thinking. I mean, it's like what I was saying about method, modern method. You're not expected to think about the whole. You're not expected to think about the purpose of what it is that you're doing. You are just expected to sort of carry out steps that are dictated to you. But you will be given the meaning of it all. 
you'll be given the purpose and you'll be given the end. And you're going to be given the end by some dead robot. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I, I was just going to say one of the kind of interesting conflicts here is with the liberal arts, you have to go through a certain amount of work. Like, you just really need to do this work, really hard work. And then you are you're free to do but you're essentially free to be able to do more work <laughs> uh that's that's good that's fruitful that's productive so you're you're being trained in that particular way so that you can do the work so that you can do it and uh with this kind of techno dystopia that you've just described which is horrifying i'm not super familiar with chat gpt or any of that but it seems like the one of the kind of moves is we are trying to create a situation in which we don't have to do any sort of work. And it's kind of the opposite of the liberal arts is don't do the work, be dependent on all the things. You don't need to use your memory muscle. We got the internet, right? You don't need to use your ability to do calculative reasoning we got all these tools and our ability to just and desire to just become like strong and with regards to our minds that's just really kind of weakened because we have all these tools and it kind of goes back to the kind of scarcity question it's like no when you don't have this stuff you just have to you just have to become strong and it seems like the this is why something like Peach Like a Champion is, is interesting because it's trying to tackle certain modern problems. And any sort of classical project that ignores where we're at it is probably going to sound pretty LARPy. And this seems to be one of those challenges. It's like how, how can, in an age of absurd abundance can we become disciplined and responsible users of ourselves in a way it's it's a it's a problem you see in like ancient history where like we've been reading through livy that's another thing we're doing on this podcast and just talking about you know i know in no republic did luxury seep in so late like they were able to preserve their virtue so long and something Machiavelli talks about in the discourses on Livy is, well, poverty is going to preserve virtue. So maybe we should make all cities poor and then you'll be virtuous. Well, that seems kind of perverse. So you need some, you need laws in place to preserve the discipline of poverty without actually impoverishing your people. And so we're in the educational context. It's not just money or food but yeah all these books and technology and all the stuff that does the work for you how do you preserve because it seems like that memory which is the memorization which is a more or less inevitable byproduct of scarcity in like the classical or medieval educational setting is still worth doing even when everyone has textbooks and the problem facing school administrators is 
we're creating scoliosis in our students because they're carrying around 50 pounds of textbooks in their backpacks. Uh, what should we do? <laughs> like, that's the problem. There's too many books. But and yet the, the memory seems worth preserving, even in that situation. Yeah. And I think I do think that I think I don't know if this is Herodotus who puts it this way, or maybe it is in Machiavelli, but I feel like this is at the end of Herodotus. But it's about like Alexander choosing a site for a city. And there's the possibility of choosing it in this mountainous place because of the nature of the land will make the people tough. And he's like, no, 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 put it in a plain, like a well-watered plain so that like, because then I can use my virtue to, you know, not with not relying on the virtue of the land, I can use the virtue of the, the man, the ruler, the law to make the people tough. And there's something preferable about that, something superior about that. So I don't know if that's artificial scarcity or what, but I mean, just, you know, what does that look like in education? It's often just like, it's just a discipline, insistence upon a certain discipline. You know, it's like, yes, you do have all of these things, but you don't bring them to school. You do have all these concerns, but you put them aside temporarily. Like you focus on, you know, and so in terms of books, I mean, like treating them with a kind of respect ought to be <laughs> just like a given rather than a kind of disposable thing that's like renewed every, you know, a constant edition of a textbook and all these things. So that means spending time with something, a lot of time with something. Uh, somebody, I think, uh, what's his name? Joshua Gibbs. He's somebody who's one of these thought leaders in education. He talks about uh, the importance of, uh, he calls it a catechism, but in a classroom where, you know, he takes excerpts from the different works that are on his curriculum and the students, they, they do it as a kind of like yes and no, like a kind of uh, like question and answer. They're like, there's a question. Uh, to which this selection from the work is sort of ambiguously an answer, but it's like sort of a long quotation from um, the text being studied. So it could be like, you know, like Rousseau or Locke or Jane Austen or something, you know, depending on the class. Uh, but it's something, you know, worth memorizing, but he never asks them to memorize them. He never asks them, uh, he never grades it. He never, it just makes them say it every single day at the start of class. So they're just spending a lot of time on it, which conveys that it's important. And that's all they have is this selection. And then they get to it and they read it. And they're like, ah, oh, yes, this is the thing I've been saying over and over again. Now I cherish it. I cherish it in this context. I see, you know, why, you know, what this means. So that's an artificial way of putting aside, you know, you don't have the text, you don't have anything else. You just have this quote. This is something that's worth having. I'm just going to impart artificially this great meaning to it by just saying it every single day um, you know those are the kinds of things that schools should look to do but also i mean just like if they had if they really had self-confidence in what they were doing then they could just they could insist on a you know perfectly regimented curriculum you know that was like year after year the same thing and like including like forms of discipline that are like you know i don't mean discipline in terms of punishment i mean forms of training that are like involve a kind of regimentation. So for instance, like physical education involving like common exercises, things like that. I mean, these are the kinds of things that impart culture that are recommended by writers in the tradition who are dealing with similar problems. You know, like Plato in the laws describes something similar in terms of common exercises. This is the classic example of Sparta, which is like, this is a fertile place that has these great dangers 
because of its its affordable place, the great dangers of luxury and things. And so the law has to be so severe, <laughs> so regimented, so militarized to compensate for that. And then out of that, we get the Spartan Nagoje, which, you know, maybe we don't want to recommend that, but but that's the kind of thing that happens when you take seriously what a discipline could, could mean. But another model, very different from the Spartan Nagoje, could be the monastery, the boarding school. In a monastery. <laughs> you mentioning the monastery makes me think of this. Another challenge that we face today is just noise. So let me just read his chapter 16, the selection here on page 265 on quiet, quiet of life, whether interior, so that the mind is not distracted with illicit desires, or exterior, so that leisure and opportunity are provided for credible and useful studies is in both senses important to discipline. And this is something that we've talked about, the just the lack of quiet, just in terms like the physical lack of quiet places. So the, it's hard to find even a library that respects silence. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, a few professors and I went to like Starbucks or something, like at like, you know, 10 at night, with a lecture, like after having dinner, after a talk, and just like we were near a speaker, and it was just like playing, just I mean, it's just it's just meant to be quiet background music, but just it's just deeply offensive to my senses. I'm just like, it wasn't like it was like profanity laden or anything. It's just why am I hearing this? Like this is just here in the back, like, and just yeah, you're, it's very hard to find places that do not obtrude with that kind of thing. One, and one has to do that intentionally for oneself. I mean, even while you were reading that quote, I was like, I should look at my phone to see if I think I might have a text. From it. Well, and then, that, and then that leads to the to the additional challenge of interior quiet. I mean, we we how do how do we even do that? I mean, we consume so much information that even when we even if we do find that physical place of quiet, our brains are just going to be processing all of this like limitless information that our eyes just went like you know you, you do the, the scroll you scroll for you know three minutes how much information did you just consume and how long does it take you as a human being to be able to set that aside and actually reach a place of quiet interior quiet yeah I don't know that there's a precise answer but he kind of sees this as a precondition for discipline. And we are, I think we're just at a stage where we just need like the hardcore discipline in order to even enforce the existence of quiet. Yeah, I, I agree. And part of that would involve a, like a, there's a voluntary surrender that has to happen in any educational situation because there's a, fun, there's a paradox there because you don't know, because you lack knowledge you need to submit to somebody who has knowledge in order to get it. But you don't know that they're the one to submit to because you don't know. <laughs> so you you need from them precisely the knowledge that you would require to judge whether that person is their teacher. But, uh, you know, there are certain signs and emanations and somebody else that you trust could tell you, you should you should learn from this person or you should go to this school. But there are so few people who claim to be the one who has the knowledge that you need, you know, comprehensively, that those who do claim that 
can deceive a lot of people <laughs> um, because people are so hungry for that kind of thing. And, and this is the kind of thing I talk about in my classes for classical pedagogy in much smaller ways. But just like part of the idea is, you know, we think that by giving students choices, we are freeing them. And in reality, we are like confusing and, and, uh, them and creating chaos in their lives. Like what you need to do is restrict their choices and uh, <laughs> direct them precisely. And that needs to be done both in terms of just the curriculum, but it also just in terms of pedagogy. And that's something that's freeing for them. So you need to have confidence that the curriculum is like the right curriculum and don't apologize for it and insist upon it and insist upon every part of it. And if you can't do that, then you're, you know, you can, you can still work with that uh, maybe, but it's just going to be less effective and it's going to be less quiet there and less humility there because you're not insisting upon it. And that's the attraction of something like a monastery because it says, like, this is a rule that you follow. It's a discipline. You submit to this. And you're going to have doubts about it and you're going to have frustrations, but you have to recognize that it's not for your individual judgment in every instance. Now, a monastery is different from a school. A rule that you submit to in a monastery is different from a curriculum, because, especially a liberal arts curriculum, because you're supposed to graduate from a liberal arts curriculum. <laughs> to be a free person who can rule yourself and others. First, you need that curriculum. Yeah, there's a really great section in here at the bottom of 263 in the chapter concerning humility that I think really speaks to the need for that curriculum because he's, Hugh St. Victor's kind of diagnosing the different species of pride, you might say, that you'll encounter in the course of your studies. And so one is that kind of sophomore who doesn't know anything and yet, ah, oh, I'm going to solve the problem of evil because I just read the Theodicy Wikipedia article. But then another one is, you might call it like anti-intellectualism, like intellectual anti-intellectualism. He says, in our days, there are certain peddlers of trifles that come fuming forth, glorying in I know not what. They accuse our forefathers of simplicity and suppose that wisdom, having been born with themselves, with themselves will die. They say that the divine utterances have such a simple way of speaking that no one has to study them under masters, but can sufficiently penetrate to the hidden treasures of truth by his own mental acumen. They wrinkle their noses and purse their lips at lecturers in divinity and do not understand that they themselves give offense to God. And he says, it is not my advice that you imitate men of this kind. So there's this, there's this revulsion, I think, that is actually kind of common and natural when you come upon the accrued knowledge and wisdom of generations, where it's like, you need to memorize this. You need to read this commentary on this treatise, which is itself a treatment of this thing. And you kind of look at it and you can be overcome by nausea, I think. And a lot of reform movements are, I, I think, at least partially born out of this nausea. Like, oh my gosh, it's generation after generation after generation, all talking about the same thing. Can we just cut through all the BS? And I think 
for a man of great wisdom and learning, that is actually a worthwhile endeavor is to kind of renew renew a society's encounter with truth and wisdom. But that's not something a freshman can do. And so the kind of vicious way of dealing with that nausea is to say, truth is so simple. You don't need to listen to any of these people. Just, you know, read this one verse in the New Testament. That tells you everything you need to know. And anything you need to interpret in life, just read through the lens of that one verse or that passage or this idea, and it'll solve it for you. Boom. Wisdom achieved. Yeah, I mean, that's one result of taking that path, that reaction to nausea. But I mean, you could also, I mean, like, look at what a place like St. John's does, you know, and one of its, the, its new program there in about the 30s new program, but under Jacob Klein in the 50s, I mean, Klein says in the idea of liberal ed- education that, you know, you want to, liberal education starts with, so before any discipline, before any formalization, you have this sort of moment of encounter with being, truth, that is provoked by a kind of knowledge of one's ignorance. Really, education is about having those moments where you unlearn what you've learned and now have nothing to replace it with. And so then you see the fundamental questions that are behind the disciplines, behind the arts, the questions to which they propose to be answers. And then maybe you can go and study those things you know, so that like the old new program at St. John's is kind of like the liberal arts. That's what we're doing. And that's still stated. I mean, like the statement of the program, like Eva Brand wrote that I think they still have. You know, it still talks about we're doing the liberal arts. But then there's the Jacob Klein take on it, which is, you know, I know we're, we're trying to have the fundamental question. I mean, so it's like you get this sort of infusion of Husserlian, Heideggerian, you know, radical beginnings in with Klein and where it says that you need to get to the fundamental question. So then so that becomes the new the way of interpreting what it is that you're doing when you're having a discussion or seminar about a text. So it's like about no text are you trying to acquire a definite body of knowledge. You are trying to get see the fundamental questions which it is asking, which is a great thing to do. I mean, it's a great approach to what it is to, what it is to do uh, when you're discussing um, a great text. However, you know, there's something lacking there, which is that the discipline of learning a body of knowledge first. So I think the certain peddlers of trifles, I mean, it could be, it's probably more what you were saying, Ryan, like, you know, the person who's like, no, I've got the one easy trick that will, that will cut through all of this noise for you. And I mean, also, I mean, he's probably talking about people like Abelard to some degree, like who are, you know, who are, you know, they're showing off their wisdom by engaging in these disputed and these disputations and, you know, and they, what they're trying to teach their students, I think what he was suggesting is that they're trying to teach them not deference to authority, not deference to a tradition, but ways of thinking about the fundamental questions and ways of addressing these topics so that they can teach anything, essentially. Whereas he was trying to emphasize what will enable you to learn anything. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, though, that sure, this is, he probably has something in particular in mind in his context in terms of these peddlers of trifles. But I think it's a perennial 
human thing. And so how it shows up changes over time, but it's still on some level the same thing, even if it's now more recently maybe a kind of romantic rejection of certain ways of learning. And it's about your own encounter with with being. There might be some level in which this is this is a kind of particular manifestation of a perennial temptation. Yeah, I mean, I think provoking an encounter with being is probably more likely to make one humble than what he has in mind, though. I mean, so maybe I was wrong to bring that up. I think he does have in mind something like the, you know, one easy trick uh, <laughs> to all questions kind of person. But well, if it actually happens, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You can have that encounter, or you can like trick yourself that you're having that encounter when in reality what you're really having an encounter with is like your own love for your own intellect like well i am really smart like i'm having this great experience that i've produced in my own mind and i'm almost as smart as aristotle (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean contrast that with what he says about pythagoras (laughs) Pythagoras, too, is said to have maintained the following practice as a teacher for seven years, according to the number of the seven liberal arts. No one of his pupils, Pythagoras had never heard of the seven liberal arts. Leave that aside. Instead, he was to give credence to the words of the master until he had heard him out. And then, having done this, he would be able to come at the reason of those things himself. So, don't ask me anything. No questions. You, (laughs) that's my teaching philosophy. You assume and after seven years, you could ask me. If you still don't understand something, now you're ready to ask. Yeah, right. Well, before we close, because we've been living here with Hugh of St. Victor for a while, I'll give you guys a chance to also share anything you want to in closing. But I just want to make sure we hit this image he has at the end of wisdom being carried on a chair by four footmen. And so wisdom is like this queen sitting on the chair, and the chair is philology, and the footmen are love, hard work, concern, and alertness. Then he says maybe there's an allegory too, where wisdom is the rational soul, philology is the human body, and the four footmen are the four elements the masculine elements of fire and air are in front. That's love and hard work. And then the feminine elements of earth and water, that's alertness and concern, are in the back. It's a striking image. I'm not really sure what to make of it, but I like the idea as the executive director of the Ancient Language Institute that philology is the throne upon which wisdom sits. I'll just like, I'll take that. Have to inquire too deeply into it, but I, I I choose to believe. Yeah, that's good. I wonder if he has in mind Martianus Capella's "The Marriage of Philology and Mercury," which is a you know some Manipian satire where it's, so it's a kind of allegorical account of the liberal arts uh, through the story where you know philology wants to no Mercury wants to marry wisdom, but but he can't marry wisdom because wisdom is uh, virginal. She does not, she does not give birth by herself, which is a common trope in these earlier writers, which is especially the 
um, one's writing these allegories or these sort of um, anagogical biblical interpretations. Like they'll talk about how Abraham couldn't marry or couldn't uh, have um, children with Sarah, who represents wisdom. He had to have children first with Hagar, his slave, who represents the liberal arts. And yeah, and it's all like this. So like it's uh, there's all sorts of interpretations like this. I think that's from Philo, actually, Philo of Alexandria. But so in Martinus Capella, wisdom, you know, Mercury can't, or Hermes, or, or sort of, um, or, you know, what, is, what does Mercury represent? Like communication, speech, right? You can't marry wisdom directly, so you've got to settle for philology. <laughs> the, uh, and, then there, and then she brings all of her handmaidens, and all of her handmaidens are these seven liberal arts but actually there's also others discussed but then they're like they're like well we don't have time for them or you know so like architecture and medicine are kind of dismissed because those are from Darrow's list of nine and so medicine and architecture are there they're just not described so we get the seven and that's where we get the seven liberal arts that you know are taken up by Cassiodorus, etc but here it's a different image where we don't get the seven handmaidens we get the four foot footmen and I wonder what what he's getting at through this that change, love and hard work, learning alertness. I mean, they seem like love. They seem like virtues, right? Like love clearly has all sorts of valences, but it's one of the theological virtues. But you know, what also does it mean here? Hard work is just a kind of that's a that's an everyday, down and dirty virtue. He says, concern and alertness make you well-advised. So I feel like hard work and love are at the front carrying the throne because they're like the horsepower, they're the transmission of the car. They're making it go. You're like willing to work hard and you want to, you want to get somewhere. Um, but they could just run off in any direction unless you have concern and alertness that are standing in the back, like watching and steering and like, oh, we got to, you know, kind of turn the rudder. This isn't quite an automobile because the rear wheels are the ones that turn rather than the front ones, but that's okay. Hugh of St. Victor predated Henry Ford by a few years. So they're the ones providing direction and the ones in front are providing the horsepower. So these seem like powers or virtues. Yeah, that seems right. What's the relationship between scrutiny and the rest? Is this all just one image of scrut of what silent scrutiny is, or because this is all part? You know, the, the silent scrutiny is one of these things that help unlock the hidden places of learning in his kind of epitome. So, I mean, just one thing to point out is that he talks about memory in chapter eleven and says that you can gather things together into a kind of like pithy mem a pithy heading. The ancients called such things an epilogue. That is a short restatement by headings of things already said. And the point is that you it, you provide the source that gives you the whole thing. We gather brief independent abstracts to be stored in the little chest of memory so that later on when the need arises, we can derive everything else from them. These one often must turn over in the mind and regurgitate from the stomach of one's memory to taste them. So then in the next chapter, he just gives an example of that without saying I'm giving an example of that, but he gives you he says a certain wise man, I don't know who he's actually quoting here, when asked concerning the method and form of study, declared a humble mind, eagerness to inquire, a quiet life, silent scrutiny, poverty, a foreign soil. These for many unlock the hidden places of learning. So then in the chapter you're reading from, scrutiny, 
he gives this image, and I'm wondering if like so this is 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 scrutiny just is scrutiny this whole image or is it just the hard work part? He seems to speak both ways because at the beginning he says now scrutiny that is meditation, and it's like oh meditation's one of the main stages of learning. It's what happens after reading, and so is scrutiny the same thing as meditation. And he even says, yet it seems that scrutiny belongs under eagerness to acquire, but it seems like love and hard work are eagerness. He says eagerness to inquire means insistent application to one's work. So maybe eagerness is the action of those two forward footmen, love and hard work. Concern and alertness, scrutiny means earnestness in considering things. So eagerness is the upfront scrutiny, earnestness in considering things. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Yeah, well, we don't need to solve all this <laughs> now. I just wanted to point out that he says that Socrates lived 99 years, which is very odd because, again, I don't know if he has the apology, but it's, it's very clear. It says that, it says that he's 70 there like uh, so when he dies. So what, where does he get 99? Like, where does that come from? Maybe it's three times 33. 33, yeah. One other funny historical thing he says. Sorry, it's in the Phaedo that he says. Sorry, I just wanted to correct for audiences in the future. It's in the Phaedo that I'm not an idiot. It's in the Phaedo, not the apology that Socrates is said to be seven. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Actually, that was a, an intentional mistake to draw the careful listener's attention to um, <laughs> what you're saying to uncover the esoteric meaning of your argument. So on, on the other side of textual criticism, we now know that Homer didn't exist and the Iliad and the Odyssey are just a redactor's work accumulating oral tradition. But Hugh of St. Victor knows that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he did so at the end of his life. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the Homer, Hesiod, Simonides, Tersicorus, who, when advanced in years, sang with the Approach of death, how shall I say it? A swan song sweeter than even their former wont. Maybe the Odyssey is what he sang at the end of his life and the Iliad came first, or maybe he wrote the Odyssey first and then the Iliad was the prequel and that one was sweeter. I'm not quite sure. But there's just all sorts of goodies here. You know, it's like you get an approach to these kinds of like historical facts. Like, I mean, that's not, the truth is like a kind of pleasing account that harmonizes with the other things that you know. I mean, you get this, I mean, I mentioned Philo, and you read stuff like this, you know, and Gregory, St. Gregory the Great has, like, stuff like this as well. Like, you get uh, these accounts that are like, do you think this is what the text, like, meant to be saying? Like, that when, you know, Genesis was written, that, like, the author meant, like, yes, I'm talking about the liberal arts. Like, no, no, no. It's just like, there's no... There's no point where he says, like, this is an image I'm giving you, like, how you could. He just he just says, this is this. And, like, what are we with that? It's like, well, it's any plausible and sensible interpretation is true because <laughs> this is the word of God. And says it's a unity. It harmonizes the truth. And so I can see the true things in it. Like, that's that's the pre, that's the understanding. And so that kind of thing is also taken to the tradition at large sometimes. Oh. You get a perfect example of it in chapter 14 here. It says, I could wish that our students possessed such earnestness that wisdom would never grow old in them. And then he's like, after all, this is just obvious. 
none but Abasag the Sunnamitis warmed the aged David. It's like, this is a kind of weird story in the Bible. Why? Why was it her? Oh, none but her. She's the only like young girl who could warm the old David. Because the love of wisdom, though the body decay, will not desert her lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what was being said there in the Bible. That was the <laughs> <laughs> that's why David went with Abbasag the Sinamitis. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a different approach to, whereas with the Renaissance, you get this sort of uh, critical approach where you say like, well, this is a bad translation of that. Like, let's go back and find the original text. You know, why are we reading commentaries? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yep. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Any final, final, final thoughts from either of you? My my final thought is, I think it's good to observe that for Hugh of St. Victor, the teacher is doing more than just provide information. And I think that a, a nice little example of this in um, 264, the very beginning of chapter 14 concerning eagerness to inquire, he says, eagerness to inquire relates to practice and in it, the student needs encouragement rather than instruction. So his, his teacher isn't just lecturing and just hoping that stuff sticks. He wants the teacher to see the students grow in a particular way and to learn to love this stuff. And not everything is a matter of lecturing. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I wonder what's going on there, you know, just encouraging the students to be in what he calls here um, eager. (laughs) Well, on that note of what makes for a good teacher, if if our listeners wanted to read this stuff with a good teacher, like the people over at University of Dallas Braniff Graduate School, where should they go? What should they Go look for John. Well, you could go to udallas.edu slash, I think it's classical ed. We'll put it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I mean, so our program is, you know, it's meant to serve the needs of teachers who are working and, and administrators, mostly at classical schools or people who are interested in classical education around the country. So that means we do classes during the school year, fall, spring, online, usually in the evenings. In the summer, we also have online classes, but we also try to do things in person. We also have a program in Rome every summer. And so you can take classes on the trivium and the quadrivium. You can take classes on the history of liberal arts education. You can take classes on philosophy of education and classical pedagogy. Also more targeted classes on, you know, science and math teaching classically, you know. And so in each of these classes, we try to draw from the tradition, but also, you know, we're not merely uh, sort of LARPing, as I think Jonathan referenced earlier. You know, we're taking seriously, like, what is the, you know, what are the modern questions? What are the practices? You know, these are working teachers in our program who are often very practically minded. So they want, like, humanities classes, too. They want enrichment, what was traditionally been called enrichment, and continuing education, but they also want to some practically focused questions too. So uh, classes and and questions too. So we try to do both of those things. It's a flourishing program, which means we can offer a, a lot of courses. And so oftentimes we'll take student input too on different kind of electives. We try to have, we have some focused classes, like there's a class this semester on Herodotus, just just Herodotus. 
who just has the one work. So that's just one text. And then, you know, we have more thematic ones, like we'll have, we're having one on oratory in the classroom this summer, uh, Shakespeare on human nature, things like that. So yeah, and reach out to me if you want to talk about it. Fantastic. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us. Really, really enjoyed that. Thanks for, man, two hours of Hugh St. Victor. Awesome. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time.